0: Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information.
1: As our lives and world grow more dependent on digital data, the companies that safeguard our networks and information become increasingly vital. The Wisdom Tree Cybersecurity Fund, WCBR, provides targeted exposure to innovators in cloud security, privacy, digital trust, and more. Learn more at wisdomtree.com cyber. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus available at wisdomtree.com. Read it carefully. Distributed by Foreside Fund Services LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All
2: right, I have three tremendous guests this week. It's an absolutely loaded podcast. Joining me will be the one and only Dave Nottig, Chief Investment Officer and Director of Research at ETF Trends and ETF Database. Like we've been known to do from time to time, we're gonna bat around a bunch of different ETF topics, including some uh, great questions from Twitter. So we'll start there this week. I'll then be joined by Katie Koch, co-head of Fundamental Equity at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, who their ETF business is now over $25 billion in assets. And to me, it looks like they're really starting to push into the thematic ETF space. They launched two thematic ETFs just over the past few months, uh, including one in September. They now have three thematic ETFs overall and several others in uh, registration with the SEC. But Katie's group manages over $21 billion in thematic strategies. So we're going to discuss those three Goldman thematic ETFs. And also just talk more broadly about the growth of thematic ETFs and how investors should uh, think about using those in a portfolio. And then to close this week, I'm telling you now, you're in for a real treat. I'll be joined by Harley Bassman, managing partner of Simplify ETFs. Some of you may know Harley as the convexity maven. Uh, But look, I'm going to do my best to uh, keep up with him. Uh, I would say Harley is definitely operating on a different level than I am. But uh, nevertheless, we're going to talk uh, Fed, inflation, interest rates. And we'll also look at the Simplify Interest Rate Hedge ETF, which Harley helped design. So you'll definitely want to stick around for that conversation. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Nate NateGeraci, or you can go to
1: ETFprime.com. Let's chat with Dave Nottig. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF trends and ETF database, the world's largest independent ETF centric source for top industry news, trends and insights.
3: By keeping rates so low, that is in effect driving investor money into the equity market. They're not just telling you what positions they've got. They're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate space.
2: Dave, great having you back on the podcast.
3: Oh, thanks for having me. No, I wouldn't miss it.
2: OK, so before we get into some of these Twitter questions, I, I have to ask you, have you heard anything further on this proposal from Senator Ron Wyden that would basically kill the tax magic of ETFs? Like any rumors, insight? Are you hearing anything? no
3: there. No, I haven't heard much. The text that they're talking about, this sort of single line of the tax code that you would eliminate to to make this happen, as far as anybody can tell, has not made it into any of the live uh, legislative documents that are floating around. So it seems to be only existing in the fever dream of Ron Wyden's office at the moment. I will say there's a great conspiracy theory going around on Twitter that somehow some of the bigger firms like BlackRock are actually secretly lobbying to kill this because it would, uh, you know, give them a moat because they already have so much liquidity but i think that that is literally like alien infestation level conspiracy
2: (laughs) i have not seen that one yet uh well let me ask you this because I know ICI, the Investment Company Institute, they've been, I think, very vocal against this proposal. But I guess I am a little surprised that some of the larger ETF issuers haven't been more outspoken. I feel like I've only seen a few canned statements out of the top five ETF issuers. Putting conspiracy theories aside, uh, do, do you think they're just working behind the scenes? Why haven't they been more vocal?
3: Yeah, they, I'm, I'm 100% sure that some of them are working behind the scenes and doing some research and preparing some pretty thoughtful proposals. I think, you know, there's not much point in putting out a press release where you just wring your hands a lot and, and you know, yell into the void. These tend to be, you know, if we're talking about, you know, the BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, and Vesco's of the world. These are firms that have giant research departments that know their businesses very, very well. I would expect some of them to publish some white papers here in the coming months where they point out how this tax... Uh, Treatment is advantaging certain classes of investors, right? This is doable work, um, not necessarily at, a, at an aggregate level, but certainly sort of at a surveyed level, um, you know, either one of the big custodians or the big issuers could, could definitely add to the conversation here with some hard data that's not really part of the conversation yet. I think it's a worthwhile conversation, so I, I'm fine with discussing it. Um, I think I'm, I'm hopeful we'll actually learn more about how this tax treatment is actually helping more sort of average middle class investors. Uh, and, and hopefully that maybe that'll help us ensconce this permanently as opposed to keep throwing it around as, uh, you know, a dog to be whipped every time you're trying to find more revenue.
2: In terms of the tax proposal having any shot of of being passed, are you still thinking this is a low probability? of?
3: Oh, I I think it's absolutely not going to happen. Certainly not in this Congress. I I don't think it's something that people are just going to put a one-liner into something and all of a sudden it'll disappear. There are far too many implications for it. I think it would have to be pretty heavily scored. Um, Never say never. I'm not going to put any faith uh, at this point in in D.C. suddenly becoming a functional organism. Uh, It's surprising all of us.
2: Yeah. And you know what, to your point, there's no downside to having these conversations. Uh, you know, I think it's good just for ETF education. Um, it's good for the industry. So there's nothing yeah. wrong with having the conversation as long as we get to the quote unquote right answer at the end. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's get to some of these Twitter questions. And as always, thank you to everyone who submitted these. Uh, th- these were great this past week. And I want to start with this one from Tariq Dennison at Asia. Um, he actually gave us several questions, but I, I like this one because I thought it was timely with the news last week that Franklin Templeton is acquiring O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, which, in cor- of course, that includes Canvas, which is their custom indexing platform. And you can certainly comment on that deal if you'd like. But Tariq's question is... What do you see as the odds that a superstar manager of 2030, so someone like Kathy Wood in in today's world, what are the odds they still choose the ETF as a vehicle of choice rather than direct indexing style tracking software? What do you think about that
3: one? Um, I, you know, I think it's really easy every time we get a financial innovation to just imagine that the entire world is going to shift, right? That didn't happen with mutual funds and ETFs. And here we are 25 years into that revolution. So um, I, I don't think we are heading into a world where ETFs or mutual funds somehow just disappear. I think what you'll start seeing is we we end up with much more of a horses for courses, uh, you know, marketplace, uh, which means that, you know, the investment intellectual property of a uh, Kathy would or this future superstar manager, the value is the intellectual property. And then how you express that intellectual property in a way that makes sense under a given regulatory regime is uh, not to be You know, sort of flip about it, it's kind of irrelevant, right? So if you wanted to get that kind of superstar IP in your 401k plan, well, a mutual fund might be your very best option. If you want to have it in something that you can manipulate around on a day-to-day basis because you see that person as representing a certain kind of beta that you want to trade in and out of, then an ETF is going to be the better solution. And if you've got some particularly thorny tax issues or you've got some major industry concentration issues you want to address or certain stocks you don't want to own then doing it in a di platform would let you access say the intellectual property of uh, of an arc or a future manager but with the ability to tweak it as needed all three have real use cases and i think in 2030 you're going to see all three actively in the marketplace
2: is the underlying intellectual property the longer term play here in the sense that you you look across the asset management space we've seen a number of acquisitions of direct indexing or custom indexing platforms From my perspective, at the end of the day, it's just software, right? Anybody can code software. So then you have to take, look one step further and it gets down to what what are the data, what's the data behind the scenes and the algos that run and what is that intellectual property? So let's take Franklin, for example, Mm -hmm. and they're offering Canvas. Does it come down to that back end data in IP? Does that make sense? Like, why, if I'm Franklin, why buy them?
3: The value is in the intellectual property of the investment management program, right? So there's a re- like if you look at what Vanguard's doing, for instance, right? They have a DI platform. They've been working with their their higher end internal advisor program. The things that they're putting in that DI platform are their active management team's intellectual property. Right? So they're not coming in and just saying, hey, we're just going to replicate the S&P 500 minus one for you, although I'm sure they can do that as well. They're trying to use it as a way to further express the value they believe they have in their investment IP. And so that's why it makes sense for a firm like a Franklin Templeton uh, to own Canvas or a firm like Eaton to own Parametric. Like these, these types of connections make a lot of sense. My concern with them is that they could then silo those IPs, meaning that if if canvas is now captive to a particular investment management group Uh, then what's the likelihood you're going to get that superstar manager using Canvas, even though that Canvas platform may be the very best software for the RAA who wants to use this with his clients? So we we haven't developed this ecosystem yet, but I imagine an ecosystem where the intellectual property of active managers or indexers or smart beta firms is individually purchased and used um, regardless of what underlying DI platform you might be on. That ecosystem doesn't exist, but that's the one that's really exciting.
2: It's a conversation for another day, but this gets me down the path towards um, direct indexing ultimately being active management. That when I hear IP and customization, I just feel like maybe DI is a Trojan horse for active management. If Franklin Templeton has this wonderful platform, but ultimately they want to have their their manager, they have to have some value prop to have people come to that platform outside of just the technology itself. If that makes sense, the sales pitch yeah. isn't just tax loss harvesting or uh, you know excluding to your point one or two stocks at the S and p 500 because I worked at a company.
3: Yeah, exactly. And I think what's going to be interesting is that something like Canvas, which, you know, ha- had sort of this air of independence. I mean, they're not independent to O'Shaughnessy, right? It is owned by a company. Um, but but the idea that this is now captive inside this much larger manager I, w- I wonder how they're going to position this so that RAAs show up really eager to work with them and to put their clients on the Canvas platform, which has been part of their success, right? That independence, that ability to to you know swap in the ETFs you need for say your international exposure and and use whatever underlying IP you want and to dial in whether or not you want O'Shaughnessy's tw- you know tweak on the market from a quant screen perspective. That that's a, that was a valuable independent proposition for an RAA. It's a little different when it's coming from a Franklin Templeton.
2: It's a it's the distribution challenge in another uh, another form. Yeah, right? exactly. Okay. Uh, next question comes from Ryan Curlin over at Alpha Architect, Twitter handle at Ryan P Curlin, and actually it's two questions here, uh, but I feel like these also tie into the future landscape of ETFs. Um, number one, will there be more or less ETF companies in ten years? And then number two, will the top three ETF companies control more or less market share in 10 years? What what do you
3: think? Um, I, I think it's relatively easy to say we're going to have more companies and less, uh, you know, a lower Herfindahl index, right, and less, less concentration in the top players, um, largely just because momentum is going to push it that way. Now, there are a couple things that could, could mess that up. <clears throat> what I mean by momentum is just the new players, right? So we've already seen folks like Putnam, and T-Row show up, American Century. Um, and yeah, you know, they haven't pulled in hundreds of billions of dollars, but they've had quite successful entries into the space, some with conversions, some with Conversions, but you know, you look at folks like DFA showing up with you know tens of billions of dollars in conversions, you can see how the market share thing is going to go against the top of the leaderboard just because these big players are going to show up with conversions that get them into the top 10 real fast. So, I think that's a trend we're going to continue to see. Appropriate funds are going to get converted, those firms will also have success launching clone versions of other strategies that they know they have successful relationships with advisors on. So I, I do think we're going to have more players. And I think we'll actually see more diversity in where the assets are.
2: OK, so that was a perfect response because we actually got a couple of questions regarding mutual fund to ETF conversions, which to your point, that could play a role in eating away some market share from the, the big three. Uh, the first question comes from at Louie Grimes. I'm not reading the Twitter handle. There's a bunch of numbers in it. Um, they ask, what is the likelihood of American funds converting any of their existing mutual funds into ETFs? And of course, uh, we we now know American Funds is finally getting involved in ETFs, right? First ETFs will launch, I believe, in in what, Q1 of next year. What what do you think about conversions, though?
3: Yeah, I I think, you know, I'm not going to say any, right, because I honestly hadn't really realized how much money was in those, uh, those dimensional tax advantage portfolios. I'm sure there is some mutual fund in the American Century lineup that is not used by any defined contribution. I'm sorry, in the American Funds lineup that's not being used in any 401k plans anywhere, those are ripe for conversion. I'm sure they exist in the lineup. They're just not the ones we're talking about. If we're talking about things like Growth Fund of America, I will say that the chances there are probably zero. Uh, now, if if we ever get the roll off on the share class patents by Vanguard, that would be a classic place for them to do that. Uh, but that existing fund is, is a staple in thousands of defined contribution plans. Uh, I, I can't imagine the nightmare of trying to convert it. Uh, so no, I don't think we're going to see the and just like we didn't see with Magellan, right? You're not those big name above the title, uh, you know, multi-billion-dollar actively managed funds. They're all list loaded into four hundred and one k plans all over the country.
2: You are teaming me up absolutely perfect today. You mentioned four hundred and one k plans, defined uh, contribution plans. The other question on mutual fund conversions comes from uh, Tom at Current Yield. And he was asking, what do you see or when do you see the bulk of target date funds converting to ETFs and, and what obstacles remain in the way? And from my standpoint, I do think the biggest obstacle is clearly 401k plans, which is where in the bulk of assets and target date I, funds resign. A- anything that you would add to that? Or is it that simple? Yeah,
3: we, we used to have target date funds in ETFs and literally nobody in the universe cared, right? And they, they, were, and they were like BlackRock funds. They were great funds um, and nobody cares because target date funds are very specifically used for dollar cost averaging situations, like that, is their prime use case. Um, and you know, despite some arguments people have had on online recently, I know Malu came out and was pretty negative on target date funds, and um, you know, lots of conversations about that. But the point is, for a lot of investors, target date funds are their introduction to investing through their retirement plan at work. That is the use case for target date funds. There's essentially no money in target date funds outside of tax advantage structures like, uh, you know, 529 plans and 401ks. Um, So so there's really no reason for any of them to ever convert to ETFs. And in fact, they would they would make their lives more difficult because you can't put 12 bucks into a target date fund. You got to put in one share. Uh, So I I just literally think it's never going to happen,
2: by the way, on the debate around target funds. I did see that back and forth last week on Twitter. Uh, I think it was sparked by creative planning's Peter Malouk, and he, he had tweeted out that target date funds were a terrible choice for most people, of course, got a lot of responses. And I think his rationale was just that someone's portfolio allocation shouldn't be tied to their age, right? He, he said an allocation should be based on uh, an investor-specific goals and, and the type of return they require, those sorts of things. Uh, I think, you know, overall, his point was there are other more important factors here. I'll just say that I, I think I generally agree with that, but I would also say I think investors could do much, much worse than investing in target date funds. Like, when I think about all of the boogeymen out on Wall Street, target date funds have to be the least scary out there.
3: I, I think that target date fun- – look, I, I'm biased. I worked on some of the original life path funds back at Wells Fargo in the very early 90s, right, which was where, where the patent was filed for these darn things. Not that I'm on the patent. That was other people way smarter than me. But my point is I have a bit of a love affair with target date funds because I think they genuinely solve a problem, which is glide-pathing people's risk. The problem with a lot of target date funds is people look at that date – And what that date means is this is when you go to cash. It doesn't necessarily mean this is when you want to start using that money because we all know that you don't set up your retirement portfolio to go 100% to cash when you turn 65. And a lot of people look at them that way. So um, I I think the labeling mechanisms around target date funds are unfortunate, and I think there are better ways to communicate what they do to investors. Um, But yeah, I I think it is true that if you're a 45-year-old executive in the prime of your career and you're trying to retire early in 10 years, no, you shouldn't be in a you know a fund that's 10 years out because it's going to be half bonds. And that's not what you're trying to do. You're trying to grow wealth. So I think it's, again, a horses for courses things. Target date funds have a real use case, but they are not a panacea.
2: I do wonder how much the current narrative around bonds is driving some of this discussion just because... I think the general thought is target date funds own too much in bonds, they become too conservative, right, as someone approaches retirement. And we're seeing this narrative out there about the death of the 6040 portfolio, specifically the death of the 40. Yeah, exactly. So I I think it's it's one and the same in that if people had more optimistic views on where bonds were heading longer term, this discussion probably uh, wouldn't be out there.
3: I mean, I've seen proposals, not I don't think any funds have launched, but I've seen things like equity only target date fund proposals, right, which which end up in a conservative defensive dividend-focused equity allocation at the target date without using cash or bonds. Now, it's obviously an entirely different approach, but the idea of glide-pathing risk based on the passage of time is not crazy. That's actually a good idea. The challenge is understanding what your starting position and your ending position is gonna look like, and no two target date funds do that the same way. Every advisor knows that, right? Vanguard's target date funds have an entirely different allocation on the day that they come due than say the life path ones do. So they're, you really do have to look under the hood. That's the problem with TDFs is they're very, very specific to each individual company's protocol.
2: Okay, last couple of questions here. Uh, no surprise, the topic is Bitcoin ETFs. I think we, we get these anytime we solicit Twitter questions, by the way. <laughs> uh, this first one comes from Grain of Salt at Z06, Z07. Um, they ask, when Bitcoin ETF? <laughs> I'll just add to that. uh, It is possible for a futures based Bitcoin ETF to be approved in a couple of weeks. Right. If you look at the clock of filings out there.
3: Right. Do you
0: think
2: that will happen?
3: Well, so the October 17th filing, which is the next date up on the price is right. Uh, is the ProShares Fund, uh, which you would think should be front of line because they launched the first mutual fund version of it, which nobody particularly cared about. Um, So, yeah, that could happen. I actually, I'm not such a believer that the futures-based Bitcoin ETFs are going to be that interesting to most people. Um, You know, they've tracked better than you might actually expect. It's not that they're awful, um, but it's not like there's, you know, just clamoring demand, right? It's not that difficult to get access to Bitcoin futures. In other ways. So I'm skeptical that even if they do get approved this month, which, you know, I'm sort of on the 50-50 camp. Like they keep kicking these things down the line. They just did Friday. They kicked another batch of the, the physical ones out into a sort of Thanksgiving time frame. Um, so yeah, maybe they'll approve a batch of these future things and it'll suck up the media cycle for about three days and and there won't be that much money in them. So I don't I don't think it's all that interesting. On the on the big one, the Bitcoin physical ETF, uh, I think they're going to keep kicking that can down the road uh, nearly, and you know, indefinitely. I don't think there's any chance they're approving one on November, which is the next re- you know review date for those things. Um, but you know, hey, I'd love to be wrong here, but I think what we need to see is comprehensive regulatory guidance on what crypto even is. Uh, and until we get that, I think this is mostly noise.
2: The other question we got on this topic actually came from Morningstar's Ben Johnson, who, of course, you know well, Twitter handle at MSTARETFUS. So he's now trolling me regarding this bet I made with myself on Bitcoin ETF approval. So I think most people are aware. I said if a Bitcoin ETF isn't approved before you're in, I'll eat a dollar bill on camera. Also stop tweeting about Bitcoin ETFs. And so Ben asked me, uh, what is my preferred dollar preparation? Do I saute it? (laughs) Do I put it in the microwave <laughs> for 15 seconds? Any sides to go with it? So I'm going to I'm going to turn that question to you. How
3: should I prepare my dollar bill? uh you know i might just chop it up and put it in a smoothie and then <laughs> I to actually think about, about it. it
2: that's actually not a bad idea i'm gonna have to log that one okay here's the real question though so when i made the prediction i did not specify a futures-based etf versus a oh physical one. you dog so yeah. so does that matter to you you're, you're part of the, the the you know the etf mafia so to speak does a futures-based etf count in my bet
3: I think it should. I don't think you. I think I don't think you're gonna have to eat that. I, I don't think you're gonna have to eat that dollar if we uh, if October 17th rolls around. Then it's a happy day for pro shares.
2: All right, that's that's one for me. We'll see where everybody else lands on that. Dave, great stuff as always. Appreciate the time. Thank you for joining me.
3: Hey, thanks for having me.
2: That was Dave Nottig, Chief Investment Officer and Director of Research at
1: ETF Trends and ETF Database. With yields as low as they are today, investors seeking high current income don't have a lot of choices, especially if they don't want to expose themselves to a heightened level of risk. The Nationwide Risk Management Income ETF, NUSI, may be an exception. It's designed to seek high monthly income and a measure of downside protection in falling markets. NUSI, a new approach to income generation. Before investing, it's important to consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Call 800-617-004 for a prospectus containing this information. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Risk includes possible principal loss, Quasar Distributors, LLC.
2: I'm now joined by Katie Koch, co-head of fundamental equity at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, who currently offers 27 ETFs, over $25 billion invested, including the flagship Goldman Sachs Active Beta U.S. Large Cap Equity ETF, ticker symbol GSLC. But Goldman is now making a push into thematic ETFs. They now offer three thematic ETFs overall, and I should note their fundamental equity business manages over $21 billion in thematic strategies. Katie is now on the line with me from New York. Katie, a pleasure connecting. Thank you for joining me.
0: Oh, Nate, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having us.
2: So, you know, it's interesting. Your first ETF, which was GSLC, that launched in 2015. And if I look since then, The entire lineup has experienced really nice growth. Again, now over $25 billion in assets. I think it's been a very healthy and steady build out. You now offer Smart Beta Equity ETFs, Market Beta ETFs. There are fixed income ETFs. But interestingly, the last three ETF launches have all been thematic. So let's start there. Why the recent push into thematics? Was there a particular catalyst or was this sort of the next natural step in the evolution?
0: Well, of course, at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, we're always looking to innovate the, the right solutions and, and the right wrappers for our clients. And our purpose here, um, of course, is to build financial security for our clients. And our clients, and I think you're aware, but I'll just make sure the audience knows, they really include everybody from my mom, who's a retired school teacher, to the world's largest sovereign wealth funds. And one of the challenges that a lot of those savers are facing is that the sixty forty, the traditional sixty forty portfolio, which of course is 60% stocks and 40% bonds, it's really broken. And what these thematic solutions do for our clients and bringing them in the ETF wrapper is it allows them a solution to that problem. Um, and if I could, Nate, I'll just give you a little evidence on what the problem is and why we think it's broken. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about how we're trying to help our clients fix it. No, that's that's great. Okay, so from a problem perspective, the reason we say it's broken is that 60-40 portfolio, it was an amazing thing to own for the last 10 years. It actually delivered about 9% compound real return for the last decade. Um, as, as you know well, the S&P alone compounded about 17% a year for the last 10 years. So the set it and forget it approach worked very well. But given where we are now from a valuation perspective for both stocks and bonds, we think the 60-40 portfolio is likely to return 2 to 3% net. Um, real returns over the next 10 years. And so savers are really going to have to think very differently about their asset allocation in order to achieve their financial goals. Um, And if I could, Nate, I'll just talk about the problem with an equity market specifically, but before we pivot to the solution. Um, The real issue in in equity markets is that most of, of the world is crowding into market capitalization weighted indexes. And those indexes, by definition, are backward looking. So they're really underweight, a lot of the innovation and disruption that we think is going to drive equity returns going forward. They're they're deeply flawed in that sense. Um, We estimate um, that about half of the S&P 500, an asset class that a lot of people own directly through the index, um, is at risk for disruption. And it's really important to understand that that gulf between the disruptors and the disruptors disrupted uh, is quite wide. So I'll give you an example of that. Take Amazon, it IPO'd in 1997 up 175,000% through a couple of days ago. Uh, Macy's, which everybody's very familiar with, got highly disrupted during that period, up only 98%. Um, So in fact, actually, if you go back 30 years and look at the S&P 500 and take that whole list of companies that was there 30 years ago, uh, over 50% of them don't even exist today. Now, some of that's obviously acquisition, but a lot of it's disruption. And so that's the real problem that our clients are facing. And of course. solution is is this thematic investing.
2: Well, let's do this. Let me tee up the three Goldman thematic ETFs. You can comment on those. And then I do want to circle back around and talk more about portfolio application and some of the other considerations around thematics. So as I look at the lineup, there's the Goldman Sachs Innovate Equity ETF, ticker G-I-N-N. This is index-based. It tracks five key themes, which are data-driven world, finance reimagined, human evolution, manufacturing revolution, and the new age customer. So This is certainly a more diversified thematic ETF play. Then there's the Goldman Sachs Future Planet Equity ETF ticker, GSFP. This one just launched in July. Uh, It's actively managed. I believe this was actually the first Transparent active stock ETF offered by Goldman. But from my standpoint, this looks like it's essentially focusing on the uh, E in ESG. And then the third thematic ETF is the Goldman Sachs Future Tech Leaders Equity ETF, ticker GTEK, G-T-E-K. This just launched in September, also actively managed. I'll, I'll just throw this to you. You can talk about any or, or
0: all of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, well, thank you very much. And I, what I would say about all of them is that all of them are a solution to help our, our clients address this challenge of potentially lower returns by getting on the right side of disruption and innovation. All three of them do that. I'll focus my comments briefly on, on the actively managed ones. And let's start with the, the future planet one, which is ticker GSFP. Um, so the our operating belief here is that we're actually on the cusp of a sustainable sustainability revolution. And that revolution is going to have the scale of the industrial revolution and the speed of the digital revolution. And we think this transition to a net zero world, which we're embarking on, um, could be one of the greatest wealth creating opportunities of the next decade. And GSFP basically aims to invest in the solutions providers of our transition to a more sustainable planet. Quickly on why now, it's because governments, corporates and consumers are all pulling us in that same direction. Um, I would also say that As investors, we love seeing a cost curve bend because that's tinder for innovation at scale. And we now have wind and solar generation are already the cheapest sources of power for more than two-thirds of the world. We know that electric vehicles are almost reaching cost parity with the traditional combustion engine, despite only um, being about 4% of global car sales. And then finally, the scale of the problem is quite large. And actually, the solution needs to be very holistic. So let me just end with a couple of things that you should think about in terms of types of assets that would be owned in Goldman Sachs' future planet. Yes, we're going to invest in renewables such as Neste, which is a Finnish company that's the global leader in renewable diesel. But also, when I say holistic, think more broadly. So we love the concept of sustainable consumption. We invest in RenewCell in this ETF, which recycles clothing, very similar way of recycling as we do paper. Um, they're you know newer at this, but they've already made lines for H&M and Levi. And then finally, I would end with the example of the circular economy which is basically just the opposite of single use of of items and throwing them away. So I'll give you an example. It might not be obvious that this would be in a future planet ETF, but DocuSign, um, something, Nate, I'm sure you've used in your life and many people listening to this would have used, it's an electric signature service. Why is this good for the planet? Because, of course, it replaces paper. This company has replaced more than 20 billion sheets of paper uh, since launched in, in 2003. So I'll end by saying this gives you a sense that we've got a big problem in transitioning to a more sustainable planet. It's also an incredible wealth generation uh, opportunity, wealth, wealth creation opportunity. And you need to be very holistic in the way that you look at um, investing in it. And we think this ETF provides, provides our clients the ability to do that and hopefully to achieve outsized returns on the back of that.
2: And just to be clear, that ETF will invest across cap spectrums, correct? And then also globally, and my understanding is it's, it's also fairly concentrated.
0: Yeah, I, I really appreciate you bringing that up because these are all solutions, again, that are trying to get clients on the right side of innovation and disruption. And in order to do that, clients do absolutely must look across the world. Because the best opportunities, yes, there's some great companies in the U.S., but they also exist in Europe and Japan and the emerging markets. And in addition, you need to hunt across the entire market cap spectrum. So we invest in this ETF and companies as low as $100 million in market cap. We think all of those things are are really important in finding the best possible solution providers.
2: And then what about GTEC?
0: Uh, would love to talk a little bit about GTEC. So, um, GTEC is focused in the technology space. Um, the investment thesis here is quite simple. It's that we think the dominant tech franchises in 10 years are going to look really different from the ones that we all know today. And we're trying to anticipate this change um, by investing in future tech leaders for our clients within GTEC. Um, so, just quickly for, for context for people. Being invested in the FANGs have served people well over the last 10 years, but now we've got a concentration problem because we've got 1% of the S&P 500, the number of names in the S&P 500, the FANGs, making up 25% of the market cap. So if you're listening to this and you look at your portfolio and you think about what you own in ETFs and single stocks, you probably own more in Apple than the rest of the tech universe, and we don't think that's great positioning for the next 10 years. So we're only investing in g and companies below $100 billion. Uh, to your point earlier, we're searching globally for the next generation tech opportunities, including in emerging markets. And we're often investing in businesses that are not core to the business of the FANGs. And if I have time, I'm happy to give you a couple of quick examples of stuff that we own in that ETF. Please. Okay, great. So, one area would be FinTech, we're super excited about. The market cap of financial institutions is actually larger now than the market cap of Internet companies. It's roughly 16 versus 14 trillion, which really illustrates there's a huge amount of market cap that's ripe for disruption by FinTech. Um, Many of you will remember that the um, payment companies, which have always been big actually globally, became really hit liftoff in the U.S. during the pandemic with Visa's Cash App um, and PayPal's Venmo adding an average of two. 250,000 users a day in 2020, just to give you a sense of the scale of the opportunity here. Um, But a company you may not have heard of that we own in this ETF is PagSeguro, which is a fintech company offering payment solutions to micro merchants in Brazil. Um, Second theme I'll end with would be uh, cybersecurity, which we're invested in here. Very, very excited about this secular growth area for two reasons. The first is that data has obviously become the world's most valuable commodity and is increasingly vulnerable. 64% of companies worldwide experienced some kind of cyber attack last year. So that's a driver of cyber. And second is this move to the cloud. The world is spending uh, many uh, trillions of dollars working w- excuse me, moving workloads from networks to the cloud, and we're actually very early in this transition. And as that happens, We need new solutions for security. And so Palo Alto Networks is an example of a company we own in this ETF um, that is pivoting businesses from firewall cybersecurity software to cloud-based cybersecurity platforms. So that just gives you a couple of ideas of types of companies that um, are invested down the market cap, also outside the U.S., um, and really we think could be the next generation technology winners we own in GTEC.
2: Katie, it's interesting. As you go through that ETF, I can't help but think uh, at least a little about ARK and Kathy Wood. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, Are, are there similarities, key differences? Obviously, ARK has had a lot of success recently.
0: First of all, we are huge fans of Kathy Wood. I think she's tremendous. She's a great investor. She's built a great company. And she's gotten some terrific engagement from the retail investor, which I think is really exciting. It's exciting to see people involved in um, equity markets and really taking control of their own financial fortunes. So I I think what she's built is incredible. Um, I think Kathy would agree with me that we're both um, very focused on getting clients on the right side of innovation and disruption. So certainly for us, and I think probably for her too, the real competition is the $15 trillion in this world that is allocated to market capitalization indexes, which are backward looking. We want to try and take some of that capital and get it on the right side of disruption and innovation. And then as it relates to to what we're doing and how it may be different from others in the marketplace, uh, we've talked about being global. We've talked about including selectively, we own some companies in China. um, We've talked about being invested um, fully across the market cap. I'd also just emphasize here that um, we are fundamental investors uh, and very bottom-up driven, so we are very focused on uh, allocating capital to great management teams, so we spend a lot of time meeting co- uh, company management teams and getting comfortable with their leadership and execution. And then finally, we do have a very robust valuation discipline um, and a proprietary approach to valuing these companies that we employ um, across all of these ETFs. So those are some of the things that I think make us um, differentiate and hopefully successful for our clients over the long term
2: just a few minutes left here in terms mm-hmm. of portfolio application for thematics I think you've done an excellent job of laying out the case and, and you mentioned how these could be helpful for investors who want to diversify away from mega cap tech exposure right that's mm-hmm. become a much bigger weighting for many investors if you own the S&P 500 or, or Nasdaq 100 or something like that uh, I think certainly holding potential Uh, future mega cap tech companies is is one of the reasons. You want to have lower overlap to to broad indexes. But the question I have for you is, in terms of evaluating thematic strategies, are there any tips you would offer? So I I know Morningstar's Ben Johnson, he always likes to say that investors in thematic ETFs, they're effectively making a trifecta bet where you, you have to make three correct bets. You have to pick a winning theme, you have to pick an ETF that then captures that theme, and then you have to get the timing right. Any suggestions for investors to better accomplish that?
0: Yeah, I I do. And I'd first say, you know, it's interesting to me, having worked on on this business now, we've been doing thematic investing for six years, is um, how much engagement we've gotten, not just from individual investors, but also from institutions, that are really looking to use these types of vehicles to get on the right side of innovation and disruption, because the challenge faced by really all investors, again, is that they're underweight, that type of innovation in public markets. Um, and so I'm, I'm really encouraged by the engagement across both institutions and individuals and in getting involved in, in these types of products. And then as it relates to implementing them, the, the one thing I would say, I, I, I heard your, your comment um, about what Ben said. For me, I, I really want to emphasize to anyone when listening to this, that these are supposed to be strategic allocations. Um, so on the timing perspective, I would say you really want to be someone who's able to commit the capital for the long term because we're investing in companies that are going to change the world over the next 10 years. But those companies aren't going to work every day, every month, possibly even every year. So my, my number one advice is um, invest with people who can help you pick the themes that are going to change the world. We think we've done a pretty good job of doing that. But also you as the investor, make sure that you're patient with that capital and that you allow it to compound over time. I don't think these are things that that one should be trading tactically. And then finally, I'm obviously very biased on this point, but using active managers that can really identify for you how to get access to those themes. So it may not be, if I could just end with a quick example, the most obvious way to, to get exposure to that theme. So take electric vehicles, for example. Maybe it's not the car company. Maybe it's actually the semi companies that are being used in the manufacturing of that car, or actually maybe it's the company that makes the manufacturing equipment that makes the semis that are used in the electric vehicle. And so that active manager can help you find the quality companies within that theme, ideally at attractive valuations, and also make sure that you're in the right part of the value chain um, when, when when you're building out your exposure to that theme.
2: Katie, before I let you go, I know you can't speak to specific ETF filings that are out there, but I have seen several very interesting ones from Goldman, including the DeFi and blockchain equity ETF. There's a clean energy ETF, the future healthcare equity ETF uh, ETF. And again, I know you can't speak to those uh, directly, but can you perhaps offer some more color uh, just broadly in terms of how Goldman will be approaching thematics moving forward?
0: You know, absolutely, Nate. And I, I'm going to end kind of where I started by saying that we are our, our purpose and our mission here is building financial security for our clients. To us, the next 10 years of sitting in a 60/40 portfolio or being passively invested is tough, and it's not going to get our clients to where they need to be. And so you should expect to see us continue to innovate in new areas, new products, and the best possible wrappers for our clients to help them achieve the financial security that 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 they that they desire and and frankly that they deserve.
2: Well, Katie, again, just a pleasure connecting this week. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.
0: It was great, Nate. Thanks for making the time for us.
2: That was Katie Koch, co-head of fundamental equity at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. I'm now joined by Harley Bassman, managing partner of Simplify ETFs, who currently offers 14 ETFs, over 700 million in assets. That's all been built in just over a year. Simplify didn't launch their first ETF until September of 2020. In my mind, they're one of the real up and coming players in ETFs. And Harley himself, my guess is many of you probably know him as the Convexity Maven. Uh, He blogs at convexitymaven.com. Twitter handle is at Convexity Maven, but this is someone who has literally spent decades creating a variety of derivative and structured products. He actually created the Move Index, which has become the recognized standard measure of interest rate volatility. He's truly an expert in options and hedging and overall portfolio strategy, and he's now on the line with me from California. Harley, a pleasure connecting. Thank you.
4: Thank you very much. What What a kind introduction.
2: Well, first, how is uh, everything going at Simplify? I do feel like you're building just a powerhouse over there with Paul and David, Mike Green, the entire team. How's everything going?
4: It's terrific. It's, it, it's an all-star team. It's an all-star team that can really only exist because of COVID, uh, because we have people in uh, New York, Boston, Virginia, and out in California. Uh, and uh, this might not have been possible to gather this many quality people Uh, in ordinary times. So it's it's all going great.
2: And for people who aren't familiar, do you want to just briefly explain the niche Simplify is attempting to carve out in the ETF space? Because I feel like you do offer a really unique ETF lineup.
4: At the end of the day, what we do here is we buy convexity, we buy optionality, we buy the option. So you have a uh, enhanced performance profile if the markets move a lot either way. Um, Added protection on the downside, better performance on the upside. Most other ETFs, actually most other investments, period, involve people selling optionality, selling convexity, selling risk to increase their short-term return, increase the dividend or the yield, but ultimately exposing them to to, to, to significant price loss uh, uh, in the event of large moves either way.
2: Okay, so what I thought we would do today is start by talking financial markets, and then we can certainly circle back around to a Simplify ETF that you've helped create. But I want to start with what I think is one of the biggest topics of debate right now. And I also think this will help uh, sort of frame our discussion just with some other topics. But, but that's inflation. And I'm going to put you right on the spot, right off the bat here. Do you think what we're seeing right now is uh, transitory, or do you think it's something more sinister?
4: I'm not trying sure to call it sinister, seeing it, it is the master plan of the Fed to create inflation. We have a debt crisis. We had too much debt. We've had too much debt for over a decade now. And the way you get out of debt is you default or you inflate. You can grow also, but that's not likely under current circumstances. And therefore, inflation is the master plan. Uh, what's been unfortunate is QE1 and the other earlier plans that we've gone through has indeed created inflation. The people who say it didn't work, it's just – that's just bogus. It has worked. It's just the inflation has been in assets, um, cars, houses, stocks, bonds, gold, art. Everything has gone up. Um, what has not gone up is wages. That was the plan, and, and hopefully that will work this time. But strictly back to your question in general, yes, I do believe this is not transitory inflation uh, and, and that we will have inflation coming down the road. Um, it's not going to be 10% inflation all of the 70s, but can it be 3, 4 for quite a while? Yeah, sure.
2: My understanding in reading some of your work is that you believe the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, is a uh, manufactured number, that it's not a good gauge of inflation. Do you want to expand on that? Because I feel like that's something that a lot of investors hear, but sometimes the details are a bit lacking. So what's the issue with CPI?
4: Um, well, I, I, I'd use bogus as opposed to manufactured, but yeah, but <laughs> uh, the, the, the reason why, I mean, look, CPI is a reasonable measure for a long-term history of, of stuff, so I can't argue and say, say it's, we should toss out the window, but there are some problems. You have hedonics, which basically measure the quality changing uh, of, of, of various inputs, so computers are, are better now, so in theory they're cheaper. Well, you're still got to pay more dollars for a computer now than you did before, Um, There's a substitution effect saying you're going to go switch out of beef to chicken as prices move around. And then, of course, there's housing, which is the biggest component, which is not done by house prices, which I'm not sure is right anyways, but it's done by what's called owner's equivalent rent, uh, where they ask people, what would your house rent for if you were going to rent it? Jeez, man, that's a a tough, tough question to answer. I'm not sure what my house would rent for. And so all these things kind of uh, make it difficult to uh, figure it out. Um, but there is what's interesting is if you look back historically, there was a large change in the calculation of CPI done in the late 90s. And I believe and, and the government has a, a vested interest in keeping CPI low since so many government benefits uh, price off of inflation, CPI.
2: Harley, obviously this topic of inflation is heavily intertwined with the Fed and Fed policy. L- let me ask you this. How dependent do you think financial markets are on the Fed right now? And you can split out stocks and bonds separately if you want or, or keep them together. But obviously, one of the, the biggest prevailing narratives out there is the Fed is driving everything right now. Do you think it's that simple or is there more to it? Because I think this could ultimately play into how the Fed handles inflation.
4: Um, there's two different components. One is the Fed and monetary policy and fiscal policy also. And the other is Demographics. Let's hit on the, on, on, on the dead first. Um, my, I, I publish uh, a free commentary. Uh, it's on uh, convexitymaven.com. You can find it there. You can send me an email. I'll add you to my list. I publish once every, let's say, six weeks. And then one, one of my more recent ones, I, I show a chart there of uh, money expansion uh, in the four largest economies uh, and the total value of stocks and bonds. And it's basically a stair-step straight up. We have had massive inflation in assets. The money being created has to go somewhere. It's gone into assets. As a public policy concept, this is really bad. It's created income disparity, which leads to you know difficult politics. But that's what the Fed has done. They've also, by controlling volatility, the yield curve, and other aspects, they've reduced people's you know worries to think there's a Fed put, and thus they've increased moral hazard. Um, This is what happened in 04, 05, 06, when the Fed said we're going to take rates up at a measured pace of 25 basis points every six weeks, and thus people get over levered. This is my concern right now, is is that the Fed and other central banks have engineered um, rising asset prices, and if they pull away, it's unclear what will happen. Uh, Likely not good, um, but uh, whatever it is, Um, I believe they've added a negatively convex profile to the financial markets.
2: So how do you think that that could resolve itself? Because I agree, you know, I don't think it's anything enlightening to say a large chunk of investors now just expect the Fed to come to the rescue anytime there's this market turbulence. But what if we do have inflation where the Fed does have to act? Um, How do they sort of reconcile this?
4: Uh, I published a commentary called uh, Open Letter to the Fed. I detailed my thoughts of what they should do. And I do not think we have to end in tears. I think there are ways, easier ways down, primarily to let long term rates rise and keep the front end rate low, steepening the yield curve. And that has a number of public policy benefits that we could detail if you like. Uh, I think if they did that, um, that would ease the market down slowly. Um, you know, if you think about it, interest rates are, 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 are the cost to invest capital to start a business. I don't think taking the 10-year rate from 150 to 350 will stop someone from building a power plant. Rates at 8% might. I think it's possible to steepen the yield curve. And as steepening the yield curve, uh, it, it helps the financial plumbing of the system, helps insurance companies, helps pension funds. does a lot of good things for the economy. So I think if they were to... Ease off the tapering or, t- or to taper quickly, bring the what the back end rise up. That could, um, I won't say soft landing, but certainly not hard landing.
2: So, so just to boil that down, um, you know, this Fed put or whatever you want to call it that's out there. If the Fed let the yield curve steepen, would that be a signal to you of, of true change here? What, like that would make you think the Fed is not coming to the rescue? That they're going to let markets figure things out on their own?
4: Well, I mean, it, the problem you have there is. Uh, what would the reaction of the stock market be? Will it be a slow decline or a, you know, March 2020 gapping on down? Um, And and that's certainly the problem here. Uh, If we could engineer a slower decline in the stock market, that'd be good. If it ends up being a panic, well, sometimes you have to turn the Band-Aid off to go and uh, fix the wound. Um, And and that's unclear what will happen there.
2: I want want to get to the ETF here in a moment, but I I want to ask you, what do you believe is currently the single biggest risk to investors right now? What keeps you up at night more than anything else?
4: Well, I mean, the Fed clearly, but um, longer term, it really is uh, our immigration policy. At the end of the day, uh, you know, GDP is driven by hours worked times people times productivity. And to the extent that we have reduced immigration in this country, we are choking off uh, labor force growth. And if you go look at The other countries out there, Europe, um, Japan, eventually uh, China, Uh, a shrinking labor force growth rate is not healthy. And the U.S. has basically been doubling the GDP growth of Europe because we have growth in our labor force from demographics and immigration. And to the extent people, I don't think people appreciate uh, the value of having a young, uh, productive population coming into the country. Uh, I'm not advocating open borders. I'm just saying that Immigration policy is much more important to the economy than people think.
2: So ultimately, it's poor demographics and then the Fed. Yeah. Hmm? Okay, let's uh, briefly highlight the Simplify Interest Rate Hedge ETF, ticker PFIX. Again, this is a strategy you helped develop. Uh, Just walk us through the basics here.
4: Um, This strategy is so totally unique. It's really unbelievable. It's the first time, really, that we've uh, allowed civilians which I mean by that non-professionals, to have access to professional derivatives, professional options. Okay, And these are options that are not listed, and they expire you know, two years, five years, ten years out. In this particular trade, ETF, what we've done is this. We've said we're going to put $25 into a five-year treasury and then the balance into a seven-year option on the 20-year interest rate struck at four and a quarter. That's it. It never changes, it's never managed. And with that, you can basically profile how this uh, instrument will more or less perform as rates go up or down. We bought the product at 50. It was unfortunate that that was the high mark in interest rates when the CPI came out in May. It proceeded to go down to 38, and that's as rates went, you know, went down by 60, 70 basis points. Rates have been rising, and the PIFIX product is rising also. Uh, it is a hedge. Uh, it, it's meant to go and uh, be a fire insurance policy against higher interest rates for anything you have that is interest rate sensitive. So not only would be your bond portfolio, if you have a house and you have, a, have an arm, a 5-1 arm, and you're partway through it, you're worried that higher rates will make the reset difficult, that would fit if you're building a multifamily house and you have a construction loan. um and you have to get a permanent loan in two or three years. This would be a hedge for that. If you own Tesla, Amazon, Google, uh, Apple, all these FANG stocks all trade like a 70-year duration bond. And therefore, for those assets, those types of, of, of stocks, this, uh, they have rate risk, significant rate risk, and this would be a hedge for that. Um, so that's the bottom line. It, it's a straightforward product. Most importantly, I don't adjust it. I don't hedge it. I don't play with it. And that gives you the, 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 the permanent specificity where you could watch, you could project his performance.
2: I know uh, nuance can be a little uh, challenging in this podcast medium, but if I try to put this into layman's terms, let's say interest rates rise 1%. Generally speaking, what would an investor expect from PFIX? Just, just high level.
4: Oh, I, I'd say probably about a uh, 10% increase. Uh, Uh, Eyeballing it. On our website and on my site, we've posted uh, profiles of how this might look. Um, But remember, what you really have here is this. You have $25 of a five-year treasury, which doesn't move, and you have effectively uh, a put option on a 30-year treasury for seven years. That's it. Very simple.
2: And what's the downside? Is it just the option decay?
4: Well, by definition... Is twenty five dollars because that's the treasury. Realistically, this thing could—it'd be hard, thing to go below thirty dollars uh, over the next two years, just because there's always a value to an option, uh, and so uh, it'd be difficult to go under thirty. Uh, under I don't, any any chance. Okay. And and upside could double, triple, or whatever, depending upon how rates go. And my my notion, by the way, is I do think there's inflation. I do think rates are going to rise. I think it's not this year. I think it's, two, it's about two years from now. The demographic inflection point happens between 2023 and 2025 when the millennials who are getting married, creating families, buying cars and houses and other household goods, that increases while the boomers are leaving the workforce. And there's an inflection point about two years from now. And that's what should really cause higher rates and higher inflation which is the exact same thing that happened in the 70s as the boomers were entering the workforce at that time. In fact, I have a great chart available on my website that shows this uh, correlation uh, between labor force growth rate and interest rates.
2: Well, Harley, we're going to have to leave it there. Congratulations on all the success at Simplify so far. I really love what you and the team are, are doing there. Thank you for joining me this week. Really appreciate the time.
4: Thank you so very much. Have a good day.
2: That was Harley Bassman, managing partner of Simplify ETFs. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through etfprime.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Maritz Pott, founder and CEO of Don Global. He's going to spotlight the recently launched Asian Growth Cubs ETF, great ticker symbol, Cubs, And then Travis Briggs, CEO of Robo Global, is going to go through their entire lineup of ETFs covering uh, robotics, artificial intelligence, and healthcare technology. Until then, have a great week, everyone.